You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of uh, Ancient Myths and the New Isis Mystery, Eight Lectures by Rudolf Steiner Collection. This is Lecture 6, given on January 12, 1918. The matters now under discussion are connected with a fact that may seem strange at first hearing, but which corresponds to a deep and significant truth. Namely, the human being wanders over the earth, but has in reality no true understanding of him or herself. In its unmitigated form, this statement applies particularly to our own time. We know that in ancient Greece, the great and significant inscription, Know Thyself, stood on Apollo's temple as a challenge to those who sought for spiritual enlightenment. Nor was this Know Thyself on the Delphic temple merely a phrase at that time, as we know from our various studies. For even in that age it was still possible to obtain a deeper knowledge of the human being than is possible at the present time. But this present time is a challenge for us to strive again for real knowledge, for a knowledge of the true nature of the human being on earth. Now it would seem hard to understand the things which must be said in connection with this issue, but they are not really difficult, despite the fact that they sound forbidding. The problem is that today when we speak of understanding it always comes down to our attempting to understand through abstract concepts. Something else is required to understand the human being. One must open oneself to taking in the image, as it were, of the human being wandering upon the earth, to to taking it in as a picture which expresses something, which discloses something, which wants to reveal something to us. We must revive the consciousness that the human being is a riddle waiting to be solved. We shall not, however, solve the riddle of the human being if we, if we remain as indolent, as theoretical in our thinking as we now like to be. For the human being, as we have stressed again and again, is a complicated being. The human being is more, vastly more, than the physical form that wanders in front of our eyes as human being. The human being is far, far more than that. Nonetheless, this physical structure that walks about in front of our eyes and which we call human, this physical form and all that belongs to it, is an expression for the whole comprehensive human being. Not only is it possible to recognize in the physical form that goes about among us what the human being is between birth and death in the physical world, but if one only will, but if one only will do so, it is also possible to recognize in the human being the immortal, eternal being of soul. All that is required is that one develop a feeling for the complexity of that human form. Our modern science, which is popularized and thus accessible to all, is not fitted to call forth a feeling for what a miraculous structure this human being actually is, who wanders on earth. We must regard the human being quite differently. You have, assuredly, seen a human skeleton. Remember, then, that the skeleton has two parts, if one disregards everything else. Of course, much more can be said about the matter, but leaving other things aside, the skeleton is a duality, 
You can easily lift the skull off the skeleton. It is merely set above it, and then you are left with the human being minus a skull. It is very easy to lift off the skull. The rest of the human being is still a very complex being, but we shall now consider it as a unity and leave aside its complexity. But first let's look at the duality which we see when we look at a human being as, say, head human and trunk human. The complete flesh and blood human being is also a duality. Now spiritual scientists need not be so fond of comparisons as to treat them as absolutes and develop them into metaphysical systems. We won't do that. But the use of comparisons is to make some things clearer. So it is perfectly natural, since it corresponds to the testimony of our eyes, to say that in respect to the head the human being is ruled by the spherical form. If we express in a schematic drawing what the human head is, we can say the human being is ruled by the spherical form. A diagram of the rest of the body would naturally have to pay attention to the complications, but we will not do that today. You will, however, see easily that disregarding certain complications, just as the human head can be represented by a sphere, so the rest of the human being can be represented by a moon form, only, of course, the relative position of the two forms will vary with the corpulence of the individual. In any case, we can conceive of the human being as spherical form and as moon form. There is deep inner justification for that. However, we will not discuss this right away, but only think of the fact that the human being falls into these two members. Now, the human head is, first of all, a true apparatus for spiritual activity. All that the human being can produce in the way of thoughts and feelings is done through the quote-unquote machine of the human head. But we would never be able to understand the substance of the human being by mere reference to the things that the head, as machine, can produce in the way of thoughts, feelings, and so forth. In fact, if we were told to use only the head as the tool of our spiritual life, we would never be in a position to talk about ourselves as capital I. For what is the head? In truth, as we encounter its globular form, the head is a representation of the whole cosmos, as it appears to you, complete with all its stars, its planets and comets, and even meteorites, for there are irregularities in many heads. The human head is an image of the macrocosm, an image of the whole world. And I have mentioned this in other contexts, although only contemporary prejudice is totally ignorant of the fact that the whole world contributes to the making of a human head. <clears throat> but if, through heredity, through birth, this human head is transported to earth, it cannot be an apparatus for comprehending the human being. We have been given in our head an apparatus which is like an extract of the whole world, but which is not competent to comprehend the human being. Why? Well, because the human being is more than we can see and think with the head. People often say these days, There are limits to human knowledge. You can't get beyond these limits. But this is only because they reckon with the wisdom of the head, and the wisdom of the head does not go beyond certain limits. This wisdom of the head has also produced what we described a few days ago as the Greek gods. The Greek gods were the product of the wisdom of the human head. They are the gods from above, meaning they are gods only for that part of the human being which the head and its wisdom can encompass. <clears throat> I have often called your attention to the fact that besides this external mythology, 
the Greeks also had their mysteries. In the mysteries, the Greeks revered celestial gods as well as other gods, that is, the chthonic gods, and those who were initiated in the mysteries could truly be said to know the upper and the lower gods. The upper gods were those of Zeus's circle, but their rulership extended only to what is spread out before the senses and what the human being can understand. But the human being is more than this. Part of the human being is rooted in the kingdom of the lower gods, in the kingdom of the chthonic gods. But it is no good to look just at the parts of the human being illustrated in this sketch. If one is to take into account the rooting of the human being in the lower gods' kingdom, then one must complete the drawing to include the darkened moon. In other words, one must regard the human head differently from the rest of the organism. With the rest of the organism, one must be much more aware of the spiritual dimension, which is supersensible and invisible. As it faces us, the human head is externally complete. All that is spiritual has mirrored itself in the human head. This is not the case for the rest of the human being. The physical being is a mere fragment of the remaining part, and it is not enough to take this bodily fragment that wanders upon the earth. All this shows that we must accept the human being's complexity. But do we encounter any of the things I just spoke about in real life? What I have just said seems abstract, paradoxical, and hard to understand, yet the question must be asked, does it ever come before us in real life? The important point is, it does appear in life quite clearly so. The head is the instrument of our wisdom, so much so that our immediate wisdom is connected with its development. But even external anatomical or physiological observations, look how a head develops, how the human being grows up, show us that the head goes through a very different development from the rest of the organism. The head develops quickly, the rest of the organism slowly. For practical purposes, the head of the small child is already quite finished. It develops very little further. The rest of the organism is still little perfected and goes slowly through its stages. This is connected with the fact that in life as well we are really a twofold being. Not only does our skeleton divide into head and the remaining organism, life itself shows this twofold nature in the rate of development of the head versus the rest of our organism. At the present time the head develops practically up to our 27th or 28th year. The rest of the organism needs the whole of life until death to do so. In fact, one needs a whole lifetime to experience what the head acquires relatively quickly. This is connected with many mysteries. The spiritual investigator who witnesses a fatal accident has a special knowledge of these things. Again, this sounds strange, but it expresses the full truth. Imagine that a person is struck down, dies in an accident. Let us suppose this person is thirty years old. To our physical observation, such a death is some kind of accident, but from a spiritual outlook it is absurd to regard such an affair as accidental. For in the moment when, from the outside, for some external cause, a person suddenly meets with death, a great deal happens very rapidly. Just think to yourselves, this same person who has been killed at the age of thirty would have become in the ordinary course of events perhaps seventy, eighty, ninety years old. If the person had lived from thirty to ninety, he or she would have gone through many life experiences, one after another. 
What thus would have been experienced in sixty years of life, the person now traverses rapidly. It might be in half a minute, when killed at the age of thirty. In the spiritual world, time relationships are quite different from what they seem to us here on the physical plane. A sudden death by accident can cause the experience, I say the experience, the life wisdom of a whole life that might still have been lived, to be passed through very rapidly. In this way we can see how a person assimilates life wisdom, life experience throughout life, and we can use this to study the relationship between what the head with its short development can provide and what the rest of the human being with its long development in social life can provide. It is true that during youth a person takes certain ideas and learns certain concepts, but the person only learns them. They are head knowledge. The rest of life runs more slowly, is destined to transform the head knowledge gradually into heart knowledge, knowledge in which the whole person shares, not just the head. I now call the whole person heart human. We need much longer to transform head knowledge into heart knowledge than to assimilate head knowledge. Even if the head knowledge to be acquired is especially clever, one should be able to acquire it by one's twenties, wouldn't you say? Then one is a very clever person, academically speaking, very clever. But in order to integrate this knowledge with one's whole being, one must remain flexible throughout one's life, and one needs as much longer to change head knowledge into heart knowledge as one lives beyond the twenty-sixth or twenty-seventh year. This is another way in which the human being is a twofold nature. Head knowledge is acquired quickly, and the course of life can change it into heart knowledge. It is not easy to know what this signifies in practice. Perhaps I may venture to give an instance of the experience of spiritual investigators, suggesting that some things may be more easily known using their methods than other intellectual research. If one becomes acquainted with the language spoken by human beings who have gone through the gate of death and live in the spiritual world after death, if one understands the language of the dead, the so-called dead, one has the experience that the dead speak in very special ways about many things relating to human life. The dead have a language which we, the living, do not yet understand well. The understandings of the dead and the living lie somewhat far apart from one another today. The dead are thoroughly aware of the speed of development of the head human and the slowness of development of the heart human. And if the dead wish to express what really happens when the rapidly acquired head knowledge transforms itself into the slower course of heart knowledge, they say that wisdom knowledge is transformed into heart warmth or love. Human wisdom is fructified as love. So speak the dead. And that is in fact a profound and significant law of life. One can acquire head knowledge rapidly. It is possible to know a tremendous amount, particularly in our age, for natural science has made great strides in our time and is rich in content, although that is not always true of the natural scientists. But this content has remained cerebral knowledge, untransformed into heart knowledge, because people, as I pointed out yesterday, no longer pay attention to what happens after the age of twenty-seven, because people no longer know how to grow old, or, I should say, to remain young while growing old. Because they do not nurture the inner liveliness, their hearts grow cold. The heart warmth doesn't stream up to the head. Love does not fructify the head. Head knowledge remains abstract theory. 
There is no necessity for it to remain cold theory, for all head knowledge has the potential to be transformed into heart knowledge. That is precisely the task of the future, that head knowledge be gradually transformed into heart knowledge. A real miracle will take place when head knowledge is transformed into heart knowledge. Those who vigorously declaim against the materialistic natural sciences, or more precisely against the philosophy of nature, 19th century natur philosophie, are completely right, but at the same time something else is also true. Natural science has remained head knowledge in Hackle, Spencer, Huxley, and so forth, and has turned into materialism. But if this natural knowledge became heart science, if it were absorbed by the whole human being, if humanity were to understand how to become old or younger in old age, the science of today would indeed become spiritual, the true pursuit of the spirit and its existence. There is no better foundation than the natural science of today if it is transformed into something that can flow to the head from the rest of the human organism, that is, from the spiritual part of the organism. The miracle will be complete when humans also learn to feel their rejuvenating etheric body so that the materialistic science of today will become spirituality. The more people find fault with its present materialism, its materialistic folly, the sooner nature science will become spirituality. This will be linked to a complete transformation which can be felt by anyone with even the slightest feel for the present state of affairs. It will be linked with a complete transformation of all that has to do with education and instruction. Who would deny, given the social, moral and historical conditions of the present time, that humanity as a whole is not in a position, and this sounds grotesque, to give children an adequate schooling, let alone an adequate education? We can make children into bureaucrats, industrialists and even church ministers, but we are not really in any position to make children into complete human beings, well-developed, all-around human beings. This is a deep-seated need of our time. If the human being is to be an organism of soul and spirit, developed in all its aspects, then that being must be able to transform throughout life what was absorbed hastily in childhood. The whole human being must remain fresh enough to keep transforming throughout the course of life what was absorbed. For what do we really do in later life? These things are not considered dispassionately enough. What do we really do? We have learned a certain amount in our youth, some more, some less. We are proud, aren't we now, that no illiterates are left in Western Europe. One person learns a lot, another learns less, but we all have learned something in our youth. And what do we do with this in later life, whether it was much or little? The way things are set up, we only remember the things we have learned. They are present in us in such a way that we can remember them. But how much do people work with these things? This learning has not been brought to the human soul in a form that remains active, so that head content can become heart content. It is not at all suited for that. A lot of water will have to flow down the Rhine before what we can give to the young now, I am talking about this one field, but it applies to all fields of endeavor, becomes suited to being transformed into heart knowledge. What is it that is needed? In fact, we have nothing at all today that could really undergo that process. For that, two conditions are lacking, and only rightly understood spiritual science can bring about these conditions. Two conditions are lacking, 
for really giving children something that renews life, something which as long as they live will be a source of joy and a support of life. Two things are missing. The first is that from all the current ideas, all that modern culture can give us, people can attain no conception of their relationship with the universe. Just think of all that one is told in school. It is imparted even to the smallest children, at least what is being told is put in words that contain what I am describing to you. Reflect, if you will, that the human being grows up these days with the following ideas. There is the earth. It travels with such and such a velocity through universal space. And beyond the earth there are the sun, the planets, the fixed stars. And what is said of the sun, the stars, the planets is at most a kind of cosmic physics. It is no more, really, cosmic mechanics. What the astronomer says today, what our culture generally says today about the structure of the universe, has that anything to do with this human being who walks here on earth? Most certainly not. Isn't it true that in the natural scientific idea of the world humans go about as a somewhat more highly developed animal? They are born, die, are buried, and so on. Others come, are born, die, are buried, and so on, from generation to generation. Events take place out of the great cosmic space that can be calculated purely mathematically as if in a great machine. But for the modern intellectual, what has all that happens out there in the universe to do with the fact that here, on earth, this somewhat more highly developed animal is born and dies? Priests and pastors know no other wisdom to put in the place of this comfortable, comfortless wisdom. And since they do not know that that let me say that, read that again. And since they do not know that, they say that they don't occupy themselves in any way with science, but that faith must have an entirely different origin. <clears throat> well, we need not expand on this, but two utterly different things are spoken of by atheistic science and by the so-called religious faith of this or that confession of the Church, feebly upholding the theistic side. It was essential that for a time in humanity's evolution, the present world conception should take the place of earlier ideas. We need not go very far back. Only people don't remember that today. To a time when humans were still aware that they did not wander on earth as higher animals who were just born and buried. Rather, they brought themselves into connection with the star world, with the whole universe, and knew in their own way, in a way very different from which must be striven for now, of their connection with the universe. But one must therefore conceive differently of the universe. You see, a world conception, like the one being imparted even to children today, would have been unthinkable in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. Humans then could not in the least imagine having such an opinion of the world of the stars. They looked up to the stars and to the planets as we do today but they did not really calculate, as the modern mathematical astronomer does, the orbits of the planets, and believe that up there a globe was passing through world space, the science of the Middle Ages saw in each globe the body of a spiritual being. To represent a planet as a mere material globe would have been folly. Read about it in Thomas Aquinas. You will see everywhere that he sees an angelic intelligence in every planet, and likewise in the stars. There was no possibility of imagining a universe like the one modern astronomy has fabricated. But for a certain time, in order to progress, the soul had to be driven, as it were, out of the universe in order to conceive the skeletons, the pure machinery of the universe. 
Copernicus's, Galileo's, and Kepler's world conceptions had to come, but only the foolish see them as something valid for all times. They are a beginning, but a beginning that must evolve further. Spiritual science knows many things already which official astronomy does not yet know. But it is important that just these things which spiritual science knows and official astronomy does not should pass over into the general consciousness of humanity. And although these concepts may seem difficult today, the day will come when they will become something that we can impart to children. They will be an important possession of the children to keep their souls full of life. For the time being, we still must speak of these things in difficult concepts, for as long as the spiritual is received by the world the way it is now, it has no opportunity to pour what is needed into the concepts and pictures to make these viable subjects of children's education. <clears throat> there is one thing of which modern astronomy knows nothing. It knows nothing of the fact that the earth speeding through the universe is moving too fast. She rushes too fast, the earth, and rushing too fast, she speeds up the head development, making it quicker than it would be if the earth were moving at a rate corresponding to the duration of the whole human life. The rapidity of the development of the human head corresponds simply with the fact that the earth moves too quickly through universal space. Our head is caught up in this speed, but the rest of our organism is not. It is withdrawn from cosmic events. Our head being a sphere, that is, an image of the heavens, must participate in the earth's performance in celestial space. But the rest of our organism, not being formed on the model of the universe, does not partake of its movement, and thus develops more slowly. If our whole organism were to participate in the speed of the earth, if it were to develop in concordance with the speed of the earth, none of us would live longer than twenty-seven years. <clears throat> twenty-seven years would be the average length of a human life. For our head is finished when we turn twenty-seven. If it, if it depended only on the head, the human being would die then. But the rest of the human being is planned to go on for a longer lifetime and continually sends its forces into the head after our twenty-seventh year, making us live as long as we do. It is the spiritual part of the remaining organism which sends its forces to the head. It is the heart portion that shares its forces with the head. If humanity knows some day that it has a twofold nature, a head nature and a heart nature, it will know then that the head obeys quite different cosmic laws than the rest of the organism. Humanity will take its place again within the macrocosm. Then the human being will unfailingly develop concepts to recognize, quote, I do not stand on earth merely as a higher animal to be born and die. I am a being formed out of the whole universe. My head is built up for me out of the whole universe. The earth has attached it to the rest of my organism, which does not follow the cosmos as my head does." Unquote. Thus, when we look at the human being not as an abstraction, as modern science does, but as a dual being, head-human and heart-human, in connection with the universe, then the human being is placed again into the cosmos. And I know, and others who can judge these things know, once human beings can form heart-warm concepts of the fact that looking at the human head one sees an image of the whole star-strewn space of the world with its wonders, then all the pictures of the connection between the human being and the wide, wide universe will enter the human soul.
And these pictures will become forms of narrative which we do not yet have, and which will bring to expression, not abstractly but with feeling, what can be poured into the hearts of young children. And the young children's hearts will feel, here I stand, upon the earth, a human being, and as such the expression of the whole star-strewn universal space, the whole world is expressed in me. It will be possible to train the human being to feel like a member of the whole cosmos. The second necessary condition is that we must organize education in such a way that human beings know they are images of the universe in their head and separate from the universe and separate from the universe in the rest of their organism. Then, let me read that again. The second necessary condition is that we must organize education in such a way that human beings know they are images of the universe in their head and separate from the universe in the rest of their organism. Then they will know that with the rest of their organism they must work upon what falls down like a rain of the soul, the whole universe, so that it will become independent in the human being on earth. And this will be a very special inner experience. Think of this twofold human being which I will now draw in this curious fashion. Once we know that the secrets of the stars flow from the whole universe into the human head, stimulating its forces, and that for a lifetime this must be worked upon by the rest of the organism so that it may be conserved on earth and then carried through death into the spiritual world, that is, once science becomes a living experience, then humans will know their twofold nature. They will know themselves as head human and heart human. For what I am saying now means that human beings will learn to solve their own riddle, to say to themselves, Inasmuch as I become more and more heart-human, inasmuch as I remain young, then in my later years I will view through my heart forces what I learned with my head as a child in youth. The heart gazes up to the head and sees there an image of the whole starry heavens. The head will look to the heart and find there the mysteries of the human riddle, will learn to fathom in the heart the actual essence of the human being. When it comes to education, human beings will feel, yes, I can learn all sorts of things, but as I go on living, as I live on toward death, that will bear me into the spiritual world, what I learn in my head will be fructified in the future through the love ascending from the rest of the organism and will be transformed. There is something in me as a human being that is only to be found in me as a human being. I have to wait for that something. I shall be thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years old, and as I grow from decade to decade, something of the mystery of humanity comes toward me through the mere fact of growing older. I have something to await from the mere fact of living on. <clears throat> Imagine if that were not mere theory, but instead life theory, social life wisdom. The child would then be educated in such a way that it would know, I can learn something. The person who teaches me possesses something that I cannot learn. Before finding it in myself, I must become as old as this person. When I hear something from my teacher, I am receiving something that must be a sacred mystery, since I can hear it from this person's mouth, but can't find it in myself." Unquote. Just think what a relationship is created between children and their elders, which is entirely lost in our age, when people know that aging offers something worth awaiting. If I am not yet forty years old, the sum of mysteries cannot lie in me that can lie in a person more than forty years old. And if it is imparted to me, I receive it as just 
information. I cannot know it in my innermost being. What a bond of human fellowship would be formed if in this way a new earnestness, a new profundity came into life. This earnestness, this depth, is precisely what is lacking from our life, what our life does not have. Our present life values only head knowledge, but true social life will die out this way. It will dissolve, for on this earth human beings wander about without any idea who they are. They really take seriously only whatever happens till the age of twenty-seven, and then spend the remainder of their lives carrying the corpse around in them, not transforming into the human being what can remain youthful through death. Because people do not understand this, because we live in an age that cannot understand this, everything that has to do with the spiritual remains unsatisfying. As I said yesterday concerning Friedrich Schlegel, he was a gifted man, he had understood much, but he didn't know that a new revelation was needed. He thought he could just simply take the old Christianity. In many respects he could say the right things in ringing words. I will read you a passage from his last lecture in the year 1828. He sought to prove, as he said, quote, that in the course of world history a divine guiding hand and disposition is to be recognized, that no merely earthly visible forces are cooperating in this evolution or opposing or hindering it, but that the conflict is directed in part under divine assistance against invisible powers. I hope to have established my conviction of this, even though it is not mathematically proven, which would be neither proper nor feasible, and that it will nevertheless remain active and vigorous." Unquote. He had a presentiment, but not a living consciousness, that human beings, by living through history, had to become familiar in history with divine forces, and together with these divine forces fight against opposing spiritual powers. He said expressly, quote, opposing spiritual powers, unquote. For in certain respects, people flee from the real science of the spirit. Since the third century of our era, when in the West the prejudice, as it was called, arose against the, quote, persuasion of the false gnosis, unquote, that was what they called it, people have gradually turned aside from all that is knowable about the spiritual worlds. And so it came about that even religious impulses paved the road for materialism, and that these religious impulses could not prevent the fact that we have really nothing to give to youth. Our science does not serve the young. In later life, we can merely remember the things it taught. It cannot become heart wisdom. It is the same in the religious field. Humanity has come, it seems, to two extremes. Humanity seems to have forgotten how to conceive of the supersensible Christ, and has no desire to know anything of that cosmic power of which spiritual science must speak again as the power of Christ Jesus. On the other hand, quite delightful, really lovely and charming pictures were developed around the infant Jesus in the Middle Ages, and in modern times through the medium of poetry and music. But pictures and ideas related to the dear Jesus child cannot satisfy a religious person for a whole life. It is in fact characteristic that a paradoxical love for the sweet little Jesus is expressed in countless songs and so on. It is not objectionable as such, but there has to be more. That is the one area where humans, in order to have at least something, have clung to the smallest, since they cannot raise themselves to the great but it cannot fill up life. And on the other hand, we have the bon Dieu citoyen, as we learn to know him in Heinrich Heine's words, the good citizen. Jesus, who is divested of all divinity, 
the god of liberal pastors and priests. Now, do you really believe that this being can take a hold on life? Do you really do you believe in particular that he can captivate young people? He is from the very outset the product of a dead theology, not even theology, but rather a product of theological history. In this sphere, however, people are far from directing their gaze to what is really spiritual power in history. <clears throat> Why is this so? Very simply, for a time, humankind must go through a stage of gazing into the world from a purely materialistic standpoint. The time has come when modern natural science, which is so fitted for spirituality, must be transformed into heart knowledge. Our natural science will be either execrable, if it remains as it is now, or else it will be something extraordinarily grand, if it changes into heart knowledge. But then it becomes spiritual science. The older science, which is still incorporated in traditions, had already worked for that transformation of head knowledge into heart knowledge. The modern age has not yet had a gift for transforming in that way what it has acquired until now. And so, especially in the social sciences, head science has produced the only real work, and therefore the most one-sided work conceivable. The human head cannot know anything of the being of the person. Hence, when the head ponders over the human being and its involvement in social life, it must bring something quite foreign into social life. That is modern socialism, in its form of social democratic theory. Nothing is quite as pure head knowledge as the Marxist social democracy. This is only because the rest of the world has rejected any concern with world problems, while Marxist circles have occupied themselves only with social theories. The others have, no, I will be polite, let themselves be dominated only by professorial, that is, purely conservative thoughts. But head wisdom has become social theory. That is to say, people have tried to build a social theory with the instrument least suited for knowing anything about the human being. This is a fundamental error of present-day humanity, the extent of which will not be fully revealed until people understand the matter of head versus heart knowledge. <clears throat> the head will never be able to refute socialism, Marxist socialism, because in our time the head's task is to think and make plans. It will be refuted only by spiritual science, since spiritual science is head wisdom transformed through the heart. To understand these things, is of the utmost importance. You see now why even a man like Schlegel suggested unsuitable means, since he was willing to accept the old, although he realized that we must recapture a vision of the invisible residing among us. But our age has a challenge to direct the gaze to the invisible. Invisible powers were always at hand, as Schlegel divined. Unseen powers have taken part in working upon what is accomplished in humankind, but humanity must evolve. Up to a certain point it did not matter much if people in the last few centuries gave little thought to the supersensible, invisible forces, for instance, in social life. But that will no longer do in the future. In the future dealing with the real conditions, that won't do. I could give quite a few examples to show this. I will bring one forward. In the course of the last decade and a half, I have spoken of this in other contexts. Any observer of the social state of Europe, as it has developed since the 8th century, knows that many different things have affected the structure of European life, this complex European life. 
the West has retained Athanasian Christianity and thrust back eastward an older Christianity originally linked with Asiatic traditions, the Russian Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. In the West, Athanasian Christianity, by forming progressively an articulated organism of the preserved Roman element, together with the newly revived German and Slav elements, created the various members of this complex organism, the European social entity. Until now, it was possible to operate in that complex organism by disregarding what lives there unseen, for there is much strength in the structure of the configuration we call Europe. An essential and important force in this structure, among others, is the relation between France and the rest of Europe. I do not mean merely political relations, I mean the whole relation of France with the rest of Europe, and by this I mean all that any European could have felt in the course of centuries since the 8th and ninth centuries with regard to anyone belonging to the French nation. The peculiarity is that the relation of Europe to France is expressed as sympathy or antipathy. In dealing with sympathy or antipathy we are dealing with a phenomenon of a purely physical nature. If we study what hearts, what human souls live on the physical plane, we can understand the human relationship between France and the rest of Europe. What is developed for France is to be understood through physical conditions. Hence it did no harm, there are similar relationships all over Europe in the last centuries, if people neglected the way supersensible powers play into things, since the sympathies and antipathies were caused by purely physical factors. Much of all this will become different. We are standing before powerful revolutions, even in regard to intimate relations, that will overcome the European social structure. You should not take it lightly if I say once again that things should be taken more earnestly than people nowadays are inclined to take them. We are standing before mighty revolutions, and human beings of the future will have to turn their eyes, the eyes of the mind, to spiritual relationships, for physical relations will no longer suffice to explain what is going on. Events can be understood only by taking spiritual relations into consideration. What took place in March, the, vol the, fa the fall of the Tsar, has a metaphysical quality. It can be understood only if one has in mind that metaphysical character. Why then was there a Tsar at all? The question can be answered in a higher sense than the external trivial historical sense. Why was there a Tsar at all? If one disregards individual pacifistic cranks who took seriously the tomfoolery of the Tsar's peace manifesto, one must say squarely, even those who, for a range of reasons, sided with the Russian realm, even they have not loved Tsardom. And in those who did love it, the love was certainly not genuine. So why was there Tsardom? There was Tsardom, I will say it paradoxically, even extremely, so that Europe had something to hate. It was necessary to provoke those forces of hatred. Europe needed this hate as a sort of fresh impetus to something new. The Tsar must be there in the first place to serve as the point on which hatred concentrated, for a wave of hatred was prepared and it can be observed in external manifestations. What is being prepared now will be transformed into powerful feelings of hatred. It will no longer be possible to understand these as the sympathy and antipathy of former times were to be understood. Hatred will come not just from human beings. Central and Eastern Europe will be hated not by human beings, but by certain demons that will dwell in human bodies. The time will come when Eastern Europe will be hated even more than Central Europe. These things must be understood, and they cannot be taken lightly. 
They can be understood only if human beings lift themselves to see a connection with the spiritual world, for what was already to some extent divined by spirits like Friedrich Schlegel will come to pass, though those spirits did not see the foundations and the roots. Things must be seen dispassionately in the eye of the soul, so that human beings can look back over the past centuries and what they have wrought. Then they will be able to cooperate in the foundation of the future. Among the fine passages that occur from time to time in Schlegel's addresses is this, quote, In the evolution of humanity, all depends on the inner being of the soul and on sincerity in the soul. Most harmful is every kind of political idolatry, unquote. How this political idolatry has laid hold of our time, how it rules our time, and this political idolatry has created its own symptom by which one is able to recognize its presence but one must unravel the connections. One must feel what is living in our time. Unless we deepen knowledge of the heart, we have no chance of giving children what they need to keep young and fit for life all life through. We do not yet have this possibility, but it must be created. Something must happen. We can say, summarizing things in a few words, schoolmastering is unable to perform its mission. Schoolmastering is completely foreign to the true being of humanity, but the world threatens to be ruled by a schoolmaster who is the object of idolatrous veneration. Footnote, reference apparently to Woodrow Wilson. And footnote. Schoolmasters, the least fitted to guide humanity in the modern epoch, will play high politics. In fact, it is a reference to Woodrow Wilson. And a footnote, sorry. Some people at least should understand these things, for they are things with a profound connection to the deep knowledge that humanity can gain only by seeking to penetrate the secrets of the human being. The world today can neither be understood nor in any way governed through desires and instincts, through chauvinism and nationalism, but solely through the goodwill which tries to penetrate true reality. The end of lecture six.